every time let's let's start can we say a prayer name of the father son holy spirit thank you again lord for the gift of this day from you um, the gift of yourself in the mass this morning um, your life itself that we for those of us who receive um, um, your life itself that we carry within us um, help us to find a strength in you um, to do those things we we never could on our own particularly the sins that are rooted in each of us um, we all we all have them some form or another ask for a special blessing too on our marriages um, our families um, and particularly where there are wounds or um, burdens or troubles troubling um, Help us to find a strength in whatever crosses we bear, encounter, and to know that in any way in which we can put ourselves away, deny ourselves, and learn to love as you, we trust in you. Some great goodness will come out of these burdens, whatever they are. I ask a special grace and offer um, a great thanks. Um, um, for all that Dante has given us, help us to take seriously what he's shown us about our sins and all that he's showing us about the much greater graces, the great splendor, the great wonders that um, to begin in purgatory and that just get larger and more extraordinary in paradise. Help us to carry those with us, to look forward. Um, um, to, to find an increased hope in seeing them for everything we live for. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay. You all know that Tracy brought cookies. If you all haven't helped yourself, she's got two kinds. They're really, they're really good. They're special. She was foolish to do that because. Now we have to get one of each. No, because now she doesn't even know it, but she's going to have to do it again. If you if you haven't helped yourself, you guys help because they really are good. They really are good. There are two handouts tonight. One of them is the celestial rose, and the other is is some things I put together that have to do with what Dante's doing with language. Just keep them. I, um, I, I know if, if I get time tonight, I'm going to refer to the one with language, but let's go back. Before we start, I've got a... Um, I've got just a couple of personal notes here that I want to make. Um, when we began the Purgatorio, I said that I thought Dante's Purgatorio was an image of of the way in which we should be living our lives here on earth. We shouldn't be waiting for purgatory. Remember in our talks about the three cities, mm -hmm. the city of God, the city of man, the city of hell, and the earth, the pilgrimage, the, the peregrine city. St. Augustine calls it the peregrine city, the city um, in exile, wandering, searching. And said then that that was an image of the church and, and it was important because it it made us understand that this was not our home. If we ever got to a point of 
being angry or disappointed because we weren't getting what we wanted here, or we ever got to a point where we were so settled that we lost any sense of wonder or adventure, we were in trouble. This is not our final home. The purgatorio was an image of, of the, the sorts of things that, that the church asks us to do to make ourselves better. Um, I, I don't think I was going out on a limb much to say that. I believe it. I believe that's an image of what we're called to do here, that we're supposed to perfect ourselves in virtue. The virtues are, are leaders to grace. They prepare us. They open us for grace. So that's, that's our life. That presented a certain problem that I didn't deal with then, but I have to deal with now. If that's true, what do we do with the Paradiso? The Paradiso is a, is a metaphysical world. There's nothing going on in that world that, that doesn't depend on an explanation that has its roots in a metaphysical understanding of everything. I mentioned that last week, I'm gonna come back to it now, but I hope that got somewhat clear that there's nothing that Dante presents us with that he doesn't explain in terms of a metaphysical principle. He's always showing how God is behind everything. So the reasons that Beatrice gives him to explain everything is a reason rooted in God. So we're way past what Virgil could offer, right? We're, what um, unaided reason, what natural reason can do to help Dante stops with Virgil. For Dante to progress in the spiritual life means he has to go to a reason that is infused with supernatural vices. So she's bringing us into a world. We're still in the natural order. We're in the heavens. We're moving through the heavens, right? But she's, she is teaching Dante to look at things in the natural order from a supernatural perspective as a way of preparing him, leading him to God. So that's the last part of the journey. Now, stop and think about this. When we talked about epics or, or journey novels or quest novels, like Fellowship of the Ring or, I can't think of other, but you can think of your own right now, the, the journey theme is one of the major themes in literature. We're on a journey, we're on a quest. It probably makes up the greater majority of works of literature. None of them presents a journey in these kinds of terms. So what Dante's showing us relates directly to our faith. We're involved in a journey that's taking us to God. How, is it, how would it be possible for us to leave our temporal existence here on this earth and come in the presence of God? If, God's like the, if God is brighter than the sun, how in the world do we prepare for the beatific vision, which is our end, if we're not gradually prepared for it? So this is a major part of the journey, and we don't find parallels for it anywhere in literature. It's not there in the Iliad, it's not there in the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Those are all in the temporal order. Most of the movies we watch are in the temporal order, right? So we're in a different world, and it, is, it has a direct bearing on our faith, because everything Beatrice is bringing him is from God. She's bringing, remember, God is reason itself. He's truth, he's light. He's not just love, he is wisdom, he is reason. So whatever she's bringing us is light from God. She's giving Dante explanations for things in the natural order whose roots are with him. So it's, it's impossible to see this journey through to really appreciate what Dante's doing if we don't continue the journey with him and see it in that light. So what does that mean for us? <laughs> are we supposed to love the way Beatrice and Dante do? 
I'm, not, I'm going to go out now. I'm going to go out on limb. I'm going to say yes. And, and let me try to make that, see if I can defend that briefly, because um, I, I don't want to push this too hard, but, but I really do want to state categorically for me, we are meant to take this seriously, just like hell and purgatory. We're not meant to brush over it because it's so intellectual or so theological. It's hard for me to believe that the saints don't have a glimpse of these sorts of things, that um, that in our relationships with each other, um, particularly if we've had sort of harrowing cross-like moments with each other, I'm thinking more of our marriages and our families, any painful moments where we, where we deal with um, spiritual disorders, even evil in ourselves, each other, those around us. But I'm thinking more particularly of, of our marriages um, because Dante and Beatrice are not married but that's as close to an adult love as we get anywhere in literature, so I'm going there. I think the saints have glimpses of these things. It's hard for me to believe, even with their, the anguish crosses they have to bear, the, the martyred suffering they have to go through, that they don't have glimpses of this kind of joy. There's got to be glimpses. Um, that's their faith. Why else would they do it? So in the lives of the faints, saints, where we have men and women who completely renounce themselves and the world, whatever they do prepares them for something. So I, I, I think the reason for saying this right now, I don't think we're supposed to just read this as a quaint piece of literature and difficult because it's theological or intellectual. It's a part of Dante's journey. If we don't see that there's a place for us in our faith, then I'm, just, I'm not sure that we're, we're reading this well. And I'm saying that with some qualifications. I don't, I don't know that none of us can live this this way. It's such a rarefied world. But I do believe it's there present to us and offered to us. And something we ex can experience and do experience even in glimpses. And my belief is that the, the saints probably do it more than, you know, there has to be a joy in having renounced the world, why, why else would they go? And why do we hear this stuff? Why did Paul, who, whose letters make clear how much suffering he had to endure, I'm a prisoner, I'm groaning. Um, he didn't want to go to Christ in one of his letters because he said, um, I don't want to go to Christ. I, I can't leave you here yet. My love for you is so great. There had to be a joy in him when he looked at other people, even, even when they were in sin struggling with him. So, my reason for saying this is I'd like to relate it to the Purgatorio. I think one of the most important things is, is that this isn't um, concocted. There's nothing going on in the Paradiso that Dante doesn't root in a sound metaphysics. I've said this before, Aristotle is the, and Thomas are the ones. He couldn't have done any of this without either one of those. So it's rooted in reason, it's rooted in God. Or none of these explanations that Beatrice gives would make sense. We are entering the world of reason, but it is deeply infused by supernatural virtues. It's love radiating through the mind. So we've got, we've got to hold on to the fact that this is still in the natural order. It's given to us. If the Protestant world denies it, if the secular world denies it, it doesn't mean that it's not there. It, it is there. This is a world of faith that Dante's entering, in which um, reason is being enriched 
by what faith has to offer. Now let me add on to that a second point. One of the physicists who was involved in the discovery of DNA said um, that when they were having difficulties pushing through their experiments and they you know, were having troubles and weren't sure they could, one of the physicists said, it wasn't until I could imagine it that it finally made the breakthrough. Think about how important that is, for artists particularly, or, or scientists, I mean in that case it was scientists. It wasn't until I could imagine it that, I find, that we finally made the breakthrough to get to it, how important the imagination is. Now clearly, I, I don't think I'm saying anything new, all, all of us know this, the if the imagination is not founded on a, a healthy reason, the imagination can go bad, all of us know that. Things we can do with our imaginations are horrible. But if the imagination rests on a, on a sound reason, then the imagination helps us, takes us into a world, a mystery we're still struggling to penetrate, like DNA, or whatever, whatever principle of physics, somebody, let's say, take the sciences. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. So, um, one, of the, one, one of the beauties of this, to me, is that because Dante helps us imagine it, it makes it possible for us to move into a richer, rationally infused world. I think about, and I'm speaking for myself now, um, when Suzanne and I, when I say prayers, when we say prayers, a long time ago, I remember we used to say prayers and she would go, we thank you, God. And I would say, don't. Um, we're talking about what we're doing to him. We should be saying, thank you. Not describing what we're doing. We thank you, God, or we give you thanks, or you hear that? Very often you hear people talk, describing what they're doing to God instead of saying it directly to him. Is that clear? We give you thanks. No, say, thank you. If he's there, if we can imagine it, we should be talking to him as if he's there, not around about, describing things we're doing to... I hope that's clear. I, I can't tell... I mean, I believe in that. I, you may not. I'm just offering this as a thought because it seems to me one of the things that Dante does is help us to do that. If we can imagine it. When I take communion, mm -hmm. I mean, I imagine him there. I, I cannot imagine it differently. Taking it in. I'm not just taking this waiver. For us as Catholics, we believe. So there's, there's this whole supernatural world that's becoming a part of our being. We have to imagine that to make it real. Otherwise, pew, the Protestants, the Protestants are going, why are you standing up and sitting down too much? Or why are you putting that thing in your mouth? You know, I mean, it's... So, this thing about the imagination and what poetry helps us to see is not a small one. The, the poets can... The imagination is one of our vital functions. If it's, if it's healthy, it can help move us more deeply into mysteries so that we can throw some light on them. Which is what Dante's doing in the Paradiso. So keep in mind these elements. The Paradiso is one of the most difficult pieces of literature, I think, in our tradition, but because it's dealing with faith. So if, if it's something we can look at and, and struggle with and, and see that there really is something there and imagine it, seems to me it can greatly deepen what we've been given in our faith, that other, the Islams don't have it, the Muslims don't have it, the Jews don't have it, the Protestants don't have it. This is something peculiar to, the, to us, and that's, it seems to me that's one of the reasons why Dante is so important. So, that's a personal note. Okay.
Um, okay, just a quick review. We've been talking about first causes. Remember that um, Bob's not here. That's why, God, Bob and Marcy are not here. I know, it's unnerving. <laughs> By the way, I've got to say something. Boy, that shakes me. Really does shake me. Um, one of the couples, they, they come to a couple of evening classes, but usually in the morning. One of the couples, Ron and Priscilla, lost their home a month ago or so. Oh my God. They, they had been living in this home, I think, for six or seven or eight years, and the owner sold it, and there were problems that got legal, that went to a legal, um, and full of difficulties and awful, awful experience, nightmare experiences. They had to move and were given time, were really thrown out. Um, and somebody offered help, and then over the weekend, they were told they had to leave that place for whatever reasons. Bob and Marcy, weeks ago, had offered them their bus, but I, I, it isn't clear to me whether they heard. And I'm just wondering, when I talked with Bob, he was here at Mass on Saturday, he wondered if they weren't so distraught that they just didn't hear it. But anyway, when we saw them on Friday, we had offered the use of our bedroom, you know, upstairs room, to while they got on their feet. And Bob or Ron said he'd take us up. And I said, before you do, go go talk with them, um, Bob and Marcy, because of that offer. And he did. And then Marcy wrote me a note saying, I just, I, I got teary. I just, it was, I, I wanted to read it tonight. I wanted to read it. And I was going to ask her if I could read it. I'm not sure she would have wanted it. It was a touching note. She described the two of them coming and seeing the bus and their eyes getting large and um, and um, I think it was a weeping moment and, and Marcy's comment at the end of the letter is they have this home until they need to. Nobody's going to kick them out. And I'm, I wanted to thank them tonight for um, um, just their amazing generosity and, and the help that it gave um, Ron and Priscilla, but I saw Priscilla at Sisterhood Saturday, and she seemed to have pretty good spirits. Yeah. So yeah. Fine. Well, they had a. It was they, Marcy said they went to the Ron's work and hooked up the bus, so they've got a, and the, the the bus has got two televisions, a push-out room, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> tough life. Yeah. Well, she said the bus is as big as a. There are whatever it is, is as big as a bus. I was picturing a Greyhound, but this yeah, is an like enormous thing. One of the reasons, sorry, God, that's my mind is going. <laughs> one of the reasons Bob just came into my mind is because if you, I'm sorry he's not here. I hope Marcy was sick on Saturday. Mm. Now I'm going to call when we get home because I'm, I'm concerned that, um, that they're not here. If you remember last week, Bob said, if I've got this right, if, correct me if I'm wrong in this, he gave the example of the waterfall mm -hmm. as an instance of self-perpetuating motion. And I hope my response to him was clear. I don't remember, we didn't go into it much because it wasn't, couldn't take much time, but, but I, I thought it was a really good in, illustration, example of the way in which we don't see things clearly because he was offering it as an example of self-perpetuating motion. He said that that's probably one of the finest examples, I, something like that were his words. 
But it's not. It's simply not. It's, it's the way you would see it if you were a physicist contained in a world of secondary causes. Remember, last time I said that repeatedly, I've read these passages in Dante, where Dante gives an explanation of the spheres in the heavens, that God infuses his spirit into the universe, in, into what he makes. The prima mobile is moving so fast, it's a crystalline, transparent. It's the, it's the, it's the first mover, it's what's moved from, by God. And the first mover, the prima mobile, the first one, imparts its motion to all the planets and it and it accounts for the, the diversity and variety of the planets and the harmony that they produce in their separate movements. I think I talked about that, yeah, the music of the spheres. Yes? Yes. So God is the first cause. He's the first cause. There's no cause before him. He's unbegotten. He's not made. He's uncreated, right? Right. There's nothing before him because if there were, it would have to be greater than he is. God is all being. He's uncreated. So if you're, if you're going to get to the ultimate explanations of things, you have to go to metaphysical principles. Those are the hardest to get to. Everything else is in a world of secondary causes. First cause, secondary causes. We live in a world of secondary causes because that's God's way of protecting our free will. Right? Secondary causes have an element of contingency. It's, things are not fixed. Things can happen. We can get news that we're going to die. Or somebody's going to have a baby or you know, whatever's going to happen. We're in a world in which freedoms and the exercise of our reason are part of what goes on. There's no contingency in God's world. I hope that's clear. It's permanent. It's, 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 it's his being. So in every explanation Dante, so Bob's example was an example of, some, of, of an action in the natural order that seems to suggest self-perpetuation mm -hmm. when it doesn't. And I gave the answer to him, take away snow, mm -hmm. take away gravity, mm -hmm. other causes, mm -hmm. and you lose it. The, the scientist gets caught in a world of secondary causes, he will try to explain, and they're, they're they're useful, important explanations. They, they do explain something. But they, they, they don't explain as ultimate causes. They can't serve that way. Everybody okay? Yeah. So there's nothing that goes on in the Paradiso that Dante doesn't explain in terms of first cause. All the, the moon spots, the loss of wills, whatever it is, <clears throat> he's always linking it to a first cause, to God who's doing something in the universe. So what Dante is showing us scientifically, with reason, there's nothing going on that doesn't reveal God. We may not see it. The modern systems don't show things that way. The modern systems don't go to metaphysics. They are sciences that are contained within the material world. That's why. Aristotle wrote the physics, material world, physics. He wrote the metaphysics beyond the material world. Dante's got both of those works, and I mean, they formed his psyche. St. Thomas picked up the same work in what he did. There was a um, show about creation, a documentary, and just to add to that, they created matter that, that uh, reproduced, but they had to have water 
Mm -hmm. it, sugar and, and something else before right. that. So where did those come right, from? Right, right, right. right. What I wanted to say to Bob that I'm not, uh, is that um, to Bob's response showed that he was thinking within the context of secondary causes in the material world. That to answer the ultimate questions, you have to you have to answer what was the cause of motion, the first cause. Because otherwise you get in an ultimate regress, you just go on forever. If one thing caused another, what caused it? There has to be a first mover, a first cause. And to get to metaphysical principles, you have to, you have to go to those things. So for example, for example, how did something come into being that wasn't there before? Where did it come from? You can't go to a material world to answer that question. I mean, the, if, you know, sciences laugh at the ancient world and call it mythic. Is there anything more mythic than a black hole? <laughs> I mean, I'm not aware of it, truly. Is there anything more mythic? I mean, in, in terms of a fabrication, a way to account for things? So, anyway, Dante's been doing that. Um, um, and remember that we, we left off with, last week, we left off with St. Thomas in the level of the sun and St. Um, Bonaventure complementing their two orders. St. Thomas told the story of St. Francis the Lover. We talked about that. And I read that passage, didn't I, at the end that was yeah. very erotic? Mm -hmm. yeah. and, I, and, and I wanna, because I'm not sure that I explained that very well, but I just wanna make that clear. The, it seems to me that that's consciously erotic on Dante's part. He's not, that wasn't an accident. The imagery is too, too blatant. It's Dante's way of showing, always, that the higher things always carry the lower with them. They never change. When our bodies are transformed, whatever happens in that moment, but the resurrection, when we our bodies are returned, whatever's gonna happen is not gonna change, it's gonna transform our nature, but something of who we are by nature, the way God made us, will be there, will be visible. The higher things always carry the lower, even when they're transformed. So the natural loves, won't be completely lost, they'll be present in it, even if they're transformed. It's really important to see that. Dante is not a Protestant, he's not a Puritan. I, I, over and over again I says he, he loves the body. He's made it clear through the whole Divine Comedy, the body is a good thing. I, I, I keep telling jokes, that, where's Joan tonight? You're, I keep telling them my other class about these two women who looked at each other when I said, there's this woman in the Paradiso who got married four times and had all these lovers, and the two women looked at each other and say, why are we married? <laughs> Dante loves the body. Didn't I read that? Did I read it? When Quinesia says, I forgive myself, you know? Um, he and Solomon, I'm gonna read that in a minute. Solomon had a thousand wives which puts Quinesia, Quinesia to shame. Um, so, um, the two saints praised each other's orders, then Dante um, rises into the level of Mars and he will go from Mars to Jupiter and Saturn. What we see in the next group of planets are the same virtues that we saw down here with their deficiencies perfected. Remember, each one of the people who came to Dante down here represented a virtue with a deficiency. That something they did prevented them from perfecting themselves in that virtue. It didn't mean they were in hell, it just meant their degree of perfection was less than everybody else. But they're all in the Imperium, they're all with God, and they are all happy. 
Remember um, Prakata's words, in, in his will is my peace, something like that, that to, to go against God would be to go against her nature and his nature. So here we see the, the, um, the virtues perfected. Mars, the warriors, they, they died for whatever cause. They gave up their lives. So they were perfect in fortitude. In Jupiter, we saw justice perfected. In Saturn, we saw temperance perfected. And in Saturn, we see these souls who deny themselves food. They're trying to do everything they can to perfect themselves in, in restraint, in temperance. So Dante is constantly giving images of what of the virtues and what the virtues can the produce, the, the, the fruit those virtues can produce, the beauty, the splendor of them when they're when they're perfected. Okay, that's where we left off. Um, and I think I'm gonna skip what's on here because it's because we don't have time. Sorry, but let me just see before I. No, I'm pretty much just one one last thing. I, I'm looking towards the end because we've only got one more mo one more class. I wanted to. I'm not going to take time, but it would be really important if any of you were to go back and look at Francisca and Sapi and the Bacarda and watch what what they make of themselves because of their wills. Francisca blames God, Sapia is doing penance, and Picarda says, in his will is my peace. Um, I don't want to go beyond that, but um, and I talked a moment about Dante's journey I've already mentioned. Let me just say here, one, one thing that's really important to, to not forget in this whole work is that Florence is an image of the modern republic, and um, Dante presents it in the context of God's grace offered everywhere, but we see in Florence what people do with their lives. The great sins that are inherent, endemic, in the American character are pride and envy. Um, wanting to get ahead of everybody else. Wanting to rise. I'm going to get in trouble here. Um, to win again. <laughs> Sorry. Um, to be successful, we never win again, to win again, to always be on top. The great danger for America, and I'm not, by the way, I'm not arguing against competition or free enterprise, and I don't want to go there, but, but it's one of the great temptations of us for Americans to always succeed, to get ahead, because very often we do it at the expense of other people. We're not working for a common good. We're not working with some awareness of other people. We want to excel. It's that private sense of the eye that is so much a part of our American character. And envy. Other people have things we don't. I want to give them. So those are almost cultivated. And those, those habits are cultivated in our American, our political character. And the gluttony, overeating, that is, we are, we are um, famous, notorious for obesity. The over, you know, we just eat too much. Over and over and over and over again, St. Thomas says it. He talks about the clergy getting heavy and um, Benedict and others will talk about it later, that um, the American character encourages people to keep wanting, to have more, to more. Lust, you know, all of those things, they're so much a part of our character. So the, the part of the beauty of what Dante's done is he's laid it bare. 
He's shown us ourselves. These are our sins. All of us, all of us, every one of us has this in it. This is what we carry. Um, it's us. It's who we are. He's shown us who we are. He's shown us how to answer them. And he's shown us the blessedness, the fruit of that struggle. So in that sense, you know, for me, I mean, I've presented him as a prophet of our time, that he is really showing, like the prophets of the old world, he's showing us ourselves from the perspective of God, how to answer these things. Um, okay, I mean, that's just a quick... Now let me, what I'd like to do in the time that we have remaining... Yep, good. A couple of things. Um, this is to pick up today, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do something a little bit different today. Every heaven has its own virtue. You know that, right? It. Every heaven represents a certain virtue. Um, and the amazing thing is that there's an order to it. And um, I'm gonna ask this question. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna answer it. And I don't want I want to just leave it to you. It's really, it's really interesting that the, that the order of the planets, how do how I, let's be clear here. There's an inherent hierarchy of values in the planets, right? The moon, the broken vows, justice in defi or with a deficiency, temperance with a deficiency, that was Venus, remember? The sun is wisdom, so there's no deficiency, and then you get the virtues repeated in their perfection. And each one is higher, right? Those, those up here in the level of Saturn are living, are examples of the contemplative life, which was a higher virtue than the active life, because those who contemplated God left the things of the world behind. Was that Mary Martha? Mm -hmm. um, example with Christ that she chose the better one, remember? Mm -hmm. So that as you go up, we are experiencing higher forms of virtue, more complete forms of virtue. The life of contemplation, the act of life. Here's the warrior. Let me just, uh, so two questions. One is, here's this hierarchy of values. Did, did Dante find it? Or was it inherent? He discovered it because it was there. Did he, is that clear? Did he discover it because there's this natural hierarchy in the planets, or did he impose it to make a point, to teach us? Is that clear? Because I'm amazed. Here, let me just give you one example. Why, why are, why are the, the souls in the heaven of Mars higher than the souls who are theologians? St. Thomas, Bonaventure, are the fathers of the church. Yet Dante puts these higher, and we know that those at the level of temperance and of are living the life of contemplation, they've turned away from the world. They're higher. But let me just take this as when it, why are the warriors placed higher than was he forced to do it because that was the order of the planets, or is there something inherently higher about this than this? I've got it, but why are the why are the soldiers placed higher, the warriors placed higher than the church fathers, the founders of the church, or the, well, Christ is the founder of the church, but, hmm? Yeah. Because they give their life? Yeah, I think so. 
because they gave up everything completely. I mean, how easy it is to give up everything. You, you give up life itself. Um, so there's always a reason, an order. I, I don't even want to try to answer the first question because to me, I can't, I, can't even, I can't begin to explain it. It's sort of amazing what he does. But. Okay, at every level, at every heaven, corresponding to the virtue, there is a denunciation. Every, every, every heaven has somebody stepping forward to denounce some corruption, some disorder. It could be the clergy getting fat. It can be the Pope in his hierarchy. That, that causes one of the greatest blushes in heaven when we get that denunciation. It's so loud it almost becomes deafening the way Dante describes it. So at every level there's a denunciation and it's, it usually corresponds to that virtue. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a defect, an undermining, you know, a wrong against that particular virtue. So Dante's once again, like he did in hell and in purgatory, he's making us aware of the disorders related to the virtues, except here it's at a supernatural level. Is that clear? He never, he, never, he never lets us get in an ideal world. He never puts us there. We've always got to be aware of the relationship between those two things, the virtue, the goodness, and its opposite, what's in the way of it, what people are not dealing with. Um, as he gets higher, he will finally, when he, when, he, um, when he comes to the level of the heaven of Saturn and he climbs the ladder into the stars, he comes to the... Um, the um, what's the constellation? Is that the right word? The, yeah. Of Gemini, mm -hmm. which was the sign under which he was born. That will be the beginning of his return to origins, and we'll make sense of it in a minute. One of the most important things to be seen here. It's one of the great themes of Eliot's four quartets. Is in my end is my beginning. In my beginning, none of us, none of us. I don't believe this for any of us who. I hope my last prayer for this class will be that all of us meet in heaven, that we will be there. None of us is going to get there, I don't believe, without going back through origins to, to, to trace our way back to our beginnings, who we were, who God made us to be, what our connection is to our parents, Peter, Adam, Christ, that that's the line back, that's the line Dante's taking. The theme of indwelling. Um, I mentioned that, haven't I? That everything is indwelling in heaven because it's, it's the action of the Trinity. It informs everything. There's, as Dante and Beatrice move up, I, the, the one sheet I gave you goes to that. As Dante and Beatrice move up, she's always anticipating his thought. So does Benedict, so does Damien, all of them do. Because being with God, they already see inwardly what Dante's seeing. How can it not be? The life of the Spirit is transparent to everybody else in the Spirit. We're, we're not in a scientific world in which bodies explain everything. We've entered a world in which spirit and form everything. It dwells everything. Dante's trying to help us see that. So one of the things that's happening here is everything he does is, is um, shattering our normal categories of time and space. The ordinary boundaries that we put on things because we live in a bounded world are crashing everywhere. He's teaching us to see something beyond time and space. I'll, I'll make that clear in a minute too, but 
That's just one indication that we've entered a world that's, that, that looks back to our world, but isn't that world anymore. He's, he's entered, he's getting closer and closer to being with God, where there is no time and space as we know it. And um, the higher he goes, the more the light increases. He reaches a point where actually um, he can't look at Beatrice's smile because if he did, he would be blinded. Um, when he looks at St. John in one of the last cantos for our reading tonight, he is blind. He goes blind. The radiance is too great. The higher he goes, the greater the joy, the greater the splendor, the radiance of everything he encounters. If the sun would blind us, how, how could it be otherwise as we approach God? His light has got to be greater. Um, so Dante's taking us into a world of light, and, and the amazing thing is, as a poet, he's made it convincing. I mean, it's, it's all real, because it's all based on his understanding of our nature. Okay, let me, let's go through the book. Um, what I'd like to do right now is, is try to get out of the way myself and let Dante, Dante's poetry speak as much um, as, as it's possible tonight. There's not much time, but I, um, I hope we can... This will be the last couple of meetings, so I really want you to hear the poetry and what he's doing. Turn to... Um, turn to page... 467. This is going back to our last class, but I want to pick up there. On, on page 467, St. Thomas has stepped forward again after Bonaventura um, recedes, goes back into the lights. To take up Dante's second question, remember the first question Dante had is what St. Thomas meant when he said um, on page 450, along the road where all may fatten if they do not stray, that Thomas is saying that everybody will get bigger if they follow the right course. And what he goes on to, to show us paradoxically is that, as a matter of fact, all the, the orders are becoming corrupt, the priests are becoming self indulgent and eating too much. So it's the wrong kind of fattening, and he makes clear what happens. And the second claim that he made on on, in that section was that that um, Solomon was the wisest man of all. Remember, so on on 468 he wants to take up that question and answer Dante finally, and he says, middle of 468, all that which dies and all that cannot die reflect the radiance of that idea which God the Father through His love begets. Did we go over this? Yes. So you know it. Yes. This is the. It, once again, it's this description of a metaphysical principle. The, the, this is hard, but it, I think it's, it's reachable. God conceives of himself. He's, he's all being. He's a person. He's not a thing. He's a person. God is personhood itself. He's all being. For him to conceive of himself is to conceive a person. Because he can't be anything other than that. That's what he is. So the conception he has of, of himself, the idea, like we, when we conceive an idea, is the Son. It's an image of him. Yeah? He's begotten. That means he's co-eternal. That, that's, that's why our mysteries, why the rest of the world can't understand it. They think that's blasphemous. Three persons, one God. Are you nuts? How, but I, the answer is, how can it be otherwise if you think about it? But you, to do that, you've got to go to metaphysics. 
The conception of himself is his son. He's begotten. It's who he is. The love between them is a person. It can't be otherwise. It's the spirit. Three persons, one God. So it's not an accident that Christ is the one who created the world because he was the image of the Father, the means of who he was. He takes that into creation. Christ is the form giver. He received that from the Father. He was made the form of the Father, if I can put it that way. So he's the principle, in the beginning was the Word. He was the one that made creation. So everywhere in creation is this form-giving power that's infused in nature. And St. Thomas is trying to make that clear. He says, living light from which radiant source streams forth, its light but never parts from it, nor from the love which triunites within, that's the spirit, of its own grace sends down its rays as if reflected through nine subsistences, the nine order of angels who govern the planets. See, are you following? This is a metaphysical explanation, again, of a physical phenomenon. He's, he's always trying to, to help us be aware of another level of explanation, something that's ultimate. Then it descends to the last potencies from act to act, becoming so diminished to bring forth only brief contingency. That is, when it gets down to earth, its effects are less perfect, so lots of different things happen. Um, you'll have good flowers, bad flowers, all sorts of strange things might happen in the lower where, where the operations of nature get farther and farther away from God and what he's doing. He gives that image, 469 at the top. If the wax were perfectly disposed, and if the heavens were at their highest power, the brilliance of the seal would shine full forth. But it never does. But nature never can transmit this light. Nature has its own, the secondary world of secondary causes takes over. So sometimes there will be a perfect flower, sometimes not. At the bottom of 469, my words were meant to bring back to your mind the fact that he was a king. He's, why, this, why it took the... the the, the wax took the form it did, the seal it received. For wisdom to surface a worthy, um, and asked his Lord for wisdom to suffice a worthy king. He asked for the wisdom of a king. He did not ask to know so that he might count angels, mm -hmm. to give answers to tr you know about triangles or geometry. He didn't ask for any kind of wisdom. He asked for political prudence, that kind of wisdom. In, in those terms, he was the wisest man ever was. Dante's trying to square scripture with knowledge so that the two are not at odds. Um, <clears throat> top of 471, Thomas is scolding people and telling them to be very careful about not making distinctions they should be making, nor should anybody be too quick to trust his judgment, go down, nor no Mr. or Miss Know-it-all should think when they see one man steal and one man give alms, that they are seeing him through God's own eyes, for one may yet rise up, the other fall. We need to be careful of the judgments, particularly with respect to sin and grace, because those are the two mysteries he's going to introduce us to very shortly. On 473, um, Solomon steps forward and, and answers this other question, what will happen when our bodies return? How will our bodily eyes be able to stand the intensity of the brightness of heaven. And he says, 473 in the middle, our brilliance is in ratio to our love, our ardor to our vision, our vision to the degree of grace. That's, vision is the most important thing. The more we learn to see, the more we learn to love. 
Vision comes first. We can't love what we don't know. That's why Dante's doing this work. I hope that's clear. The more we see, the more we can move our loves. The more we understand about God, the more we can love Him. Vision comes first, love follows. The more we love something, the more we want to know about it. It pushes us to know more. And he says, vision goes only so far as the degree of grace vouchsafed it. We have to be open to God. Without his light, we don't see very well. Right? I hope that's obvious. Um, okay, go going over to um, page 494. Let's jump ahead. Um, Dante and Beatrice ascend into the level of Mars, and it's in Mars that Dante um, greets, is greeted by his great-great-grandfather, Cacciaguida. This is Dante returning to origins. Dante's overcome with humility at meeting his great-great-grandfather, 491, middle of the page, Oh, my own cherished root, so highly raised that has been seen, no triangle contains among its angles two that are obtuse. You see, gazing upon that final point where time is timeless, those contingent things before they ever come into being. Dante wants to know, he, he's heard about all these bad things that are going to happen to him, and he wants to know if Cacciaguida can shed any light on it. And Cacciaguida says, this is a world of contingency. There's nothing contingent. God knows everything. He, he can see things before they happen. That means he can intervene. It doesn't mean they're predetermined, but it does mean he can see them. And He's in a position to do things in a way that protects our free will. And Katya Guida already knows what's going to happen to Dante, and he says in 493 at the top, you should be forced to leave behind those things you love most dearly, and this is the first arrow of the bow of your exile will shoot. And you will know how salty is the taste of others' bread, how hard the road that takes you down and up the stairs of others' homes. But what will weigh you down the most will be the despicable, senseless company whom you shall have to bear in that sad... It's not even the exile, it's that when he's in exile, he's going to be at the mercy of all these people that he'll have no cho choice about who's, that will really grate on him. Proof of their bestiality will show through their own deeds. It will be to your honor to have become a party of your own, party of one. And then he mentions Congrande, who was one of the most generous people who helped Dante in his exile. And then he says, middle of 494, by the way, go back, sorry, go back to page 478. As is approaching and Dante doesn't know who this soul is, top of 478, as it coursed along the radio lines, the gem contained within its setting seemed like fire behind an alabaster screen. With like affection did Anchises' shade rush forth if we may trust our greatest muse, when in Elysium he beheld his son. That's the simile that describes Cacciaguida's approach. Okay? Now why did Dante use that simile to compare Cacciaguida with Anchises? Those of you who have not read the Aeneid are going to be at a disadvantage. Those of you who have read it will know. Who's Anchises? Aeneas' father. Why was the meeting in the underworld so important? Um, because it was a, 
Aeneas had to go, for those of you who weren't here, Aeneas had to go into the underworld to find out what he had to do to go on to Italy to found Rome. And he had to get that information from Anchises, his father. And it's from his father that he finds, if you know anything about the Aeneid, you know that Aeneas is constantly responding to the gods about his calling and constantly getting it wrong. He thinks he's got it, founds a city, and it's destroyed. Something happens. He has to do that again and again and again and again. We talked about that, those of you who are here, how crushing it was to keep so different a hero. He has to keep going, listening to the gods and getting it wrong. He has to keep struggling until he meets his father in the underworld. And then Anchises gives him his calling. Now, why is Dante relating um, Cacciaguida to Anchises? Because it was because of what Dante had, Aeneas had learned from Anchises that led to the founding of Rome, which was the universal city, the city of the world. The, if you know the Aeneid, you know that that's the universal, undying city, it will never die out. So everything that Anchises did led to an expansion, a greater freedom for man and Rome. Without, I mean, without knowing it, there was some prophetic sense that that would be the center of Christendom too. But. So what is Dante saying here? Cacciaguida is giving him his calling finally on page 494. Middle of the page. Now write this in your mind, but do not tell the world. And he said things concerning him incredible, even to those who see them all come true. There's some things Cacciaguida tells him we don't know. Then he said, son, you have my gloss of what was told you. Now you see the snares that hide behind a few years' time. No envy towards your neighbor should you bear, for you will have a future that endures far longer than their crime and punishment. Go on over to the next page. Um, Father, well do I see how time attacks. It's good that foresight lend me arms. It's good that he should know about his exile because he can prepare for it. Um, Thus should the place most dear to me be lost. My verse at last shall not lose all others. This is the one thing that he looks for consolation. Down through the world of endless bitterness and on that mountain from whose lovely crown I was raised upward by my lady's eyes and through the heavens rising from light to light I learned things that were they to be retold would leave a bitter taste in many mouths. Yet if I am a timid friend of truth I fear my name may not live on with those who will look back at these as days of old. The light that was resplendent in the treasure I had found there began to flash more light, just like a golden mirror. Cacciaguida is so pleased at what he says that his light brightens. It's like it's talking to him. The conscience that is dark with shame for his own deeds or for another's may well indeed feel harshness to your words. Nevertheless, do not resort to lies. Let what you write reveal all you have seen, and let those men who itch scratch where it hurts. He's going to write things that are going to make some people really unhappy. He cannot let that stop him. He's got to tell the truth no matter what. That's his calling. So Beatrice, remember, I mentioned those two passages where she gives him his commission. She says, you must write. Now he gets it from his great-great-grandfather. That's his call. That's, this is the divine calling that he has that every epic hero we've looked at has had. Every epic hero has this divinely appointed task. We have to deal with this disorder. We've talked about each one, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Neon. This is Dante's. He's got to help the modern world see 
the democracies are the greatest political system that the world has known. We, we have something greater than, than any political system that has existed on the earth. But this is the rotten side of it. And Dante has come to show that. Um, just very quickly, a couple of things before we leave. On page 410, as they go, as they leave the level of Mars and rise to the level of Jupiter, these stars move and they form themselves into this word, um, this phrase. Um, on page 500, in the middle of the page, Diligiti Justitium Qui Judicatis Terum. Um, love justice, those of you who love, who judge the earth. And then it takes the form, finally, of the M, which is the last letter of that phrase, and presents itself as an eagle. Now, I've got to do this quickly, because our, our time is up, but, so let me do this quickly as I can. On page 504, Dante wants to know how people who have never heard of Christ, or the unbaptized, can um, be damned. You think that's unfair. 504, therefore our vision, this is two things. One of the most beautiful that relates to this page I gave you of all of the things that Dante's doing with the language, page 502. Dante's watching this eagle form, and then he says this at the bottom of 502. I could hear the beak and see it move. I heard its voice use words like I and my, when in conception it was we and ours. Explain that. The eagle, <laughs> what he hears is I and mine when what it meant in conception was we and ours. He's making it clear once again that the things as we understand them are different in heaven. That, that even language there cannot function the way that it does here. Because in heaven there can't be the, the, the individuality as we know it here. In, in heaven, the souls are in St. Thomas is St. Thomas, so is Bonaventure, so is Picarda. Souls are individual, but there's a sense of their identity with each other, their oneness, the indwelling nature that they share that requires a different language. If you look at these reflexive verbs, take out that sheet just quick, you'll see it. As Dante climbs, he keeps encountering this thing that he describes in terms of, of, of reflexive verbs. Do you have it? Um, take Picarda. Brother, we love. We love the divine will. We love as that chooses to love. We in will to will, in love to love. Cuniza. But in myself I pardon. Foco. If I indeed myself, if I gave you of myself, if I put myself in you, Right, because they're reading each other. Well, mm -hmm. that if, if I gave you my, if my spirit went from, from me to you, as thou dost in me thyself, he's putting himself in. A, isn't that what we do when we say to each other, I love you? That mm -hmm. something of us, presumably, when we say that to another, the person receives as if that person is a part of him or her then. And reciprocally, mutually, that that happens so that we become one. So in heaven, Dante's having to find ways of using language to express things which are categories of time and space can't accommodate. So he, he describes, he has that description of the eagle, and then the eagle says, 504, therefore our vision which can be only one of the rays that come from that prime mind which penetrates every created thing, 
cannot of its own nature be so weak as to not see that its own principle is far beyond what our eyes can perceive. So the vision granted to your world can no more fathom justice everlasting than eyes can see down to the ocean floor. While you can see at the bottom near the shore, while you can see the bottom near the shore, you cannot see out at sea. But nonetheless, it's still there, concealed by depths too deep. Is that clear? Mm-hmm. You know when we're at the seashore, we can see the bottom of the... If this is the sea, if we're here, we can see the shoreline here, right? right. But the farther out at sea, we can't, even though we know it's there. Right. So he's saying to us, who do you think you are? Page 505. <laughs> oh, earthbound creatures, oh, thick-headed men. <laughs> You're a ray of the divine mind, and you think you can penetrate the whole thing. How do you presume to know the mind of God? Um, and then he says, nobody can get to heaven who isn't baptized. Okay? Now that seems pretty severe, but then quickly turn, look over on... Um, 510. The eagle describes its eye, and two of the souls on page 510, of those five souls that form my eyebrows arch, and the one who shines the closest to my beak, consoled the widow who had lost her son. That was the Emperor Trajan. He was such a good emperor that he consoled this woman when she grieved, even though he had to go out and fight a war. And now he knows from living this sweet life and having lived its opposite how dear it cost a man to fail to follow Christ. Trajan was a pagan. He's in heaven and he's in the eye of justice. Now go on over. Um, Trajan's there. Um, And Ripheus on page 411 in the middle who in your erring world would have believed that Ripheus of Troy was here, the fifth in this half circle made. These are the two pagans in the world. Who is Ripheus? Those of you who read the Aeneid will know. Page 48 in our book. This is you don't, don't this is the Aeneid. When the when the um, Greeks deceived the Trojans and came in through the horse and then opened the gates and then they swarmed in and destroyed the city. It was an act of treachery. The Trojans have to defend themselves and, and Aeneas and some other soldiers had to put on Greek armor to disguise themselves and they got uncovered. This is Virgil's description of that moment. Um, they were uncovered, they were, the disguises were seen and then he says this, they overwhelmed us. Corabus fell at the warrior's goddess altar, killed by Penelaus, and Ripheus fell a man uniquely just among the Trojans and the soul of equity, but the gods would have it other the gods would have it differently. Some translations have it the most righteous of men, but the gods thought otherwise. Now hold on to that phrase. The most righteous of men, but the gods thought otherwise. Now why would Dante have put Ripheus, a pagan, in heaven? The most righteous of men but the gods thought otherwise. Because Dante is saying, but the god thought otherwise. That is, he's having fun with the man. You know, he loves Virgil. He obviously, I mean, he loves him. He was his master. But here he's having fun with his master as a way of showing there is a god higher than verse. So just remember, that, but the god thought otherwise. But notice what happens then. After saying this, Dante shocked at the top of 512. He doesn't see how this can be. And then there's that wonderful quote 
You do as one who apprehends a, th apprehends a thing by name but cannot see its quiddity unless someone explains it for its sake. Regnum solorum suffers violence. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Gat gladly from fervent love, from vibrant hope, only these powers can defeat God's will. There's that passage from, Math from Matthew, and the violent bear it away. Do you remember that passage from Matthew? It's on that um, quote on the, with the language the, on the back of the second page of the bottom. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violent and the violent bear it away. I think people generally misunderstand this. Or This is Dante's reading. That is, our categories of time and thinking cannot bind God. Cannot. Love will overcome that kingdom. Regnum Solarum suffers violence gladly from fervent love, from vibrant hope. Only those powers can defeat God's will. Not in the way one man conquers another, not the way a soldier will kill another, for that will wills its own defeat. And so defeated, it defeats through its own mercy. God allowed himself to be put on a cross. Fervent love is the one thing that can defeat anything in God. And then what he goes on to show is that is this. Trajan died, and Gregory, who was pope then, prayed for Trajan. He, this, is done, this is the tradition that, that was passed on. Trajan was returned to life and converted and baptized. So I'll, no sooner does, do we learn that nobody goes to heaven who isn't baptized mm -hmm. to answer all the Catholics who think they can answer all this. And then he says this, top of 513, the other soul by means of grace that wells up from a spring so deep that no man's eye has ever plumbed the bottom of its source, devoted all his love to righteousness. Rufius, the most righteous of men, but the gods thought otherwise. Devoted all his love to righteousness, and God with grace on grace opened his eyes to our redemption, and he saw the light, and he believed in this, from that time on, he could not bear the stench of pagan creed and warned all its perverse practitioners. He was baptized more than a thousand years before baptism. Is there any before or after in God? No. When we start using those categories, I hope you see what Dante's trying to show us here, that we get into trouble because it's as if we're limiting God. There is no before or after for God. He can do things that we don't understand. What Dante's showing is that God is not going to shake his justice, but he's not going to be bound by our notions of it, that, that God can do things we don't understand. Um, and remember that, remember that beautiful line, that stunning passage, the Rignum. On four, or five twelve, Regnum Solorum suffers violence gladly from fervent love, from vibrant hope. Only those powers can defeat God's will. Will God ever turn away from love? And is there has there ever been a saint who has loved without undergoing a violence? I don't. I mean, most of them do. It's, it's a cross. Um, not in the way one man conquers another, for that will wills its own defeat, and so defeat, defeated it defeats through its own mercy. 
God willed his own defeat. He willed himself to go to a cross. So he defeated, he overcame justice or anything. We understand that way, the limits of things, by his own mercy. There is nothing he can't overcome, nothing. Um, Dante ascends into the fixed stars and it's there that he will um, he will um, meet um, Benedict and um, Damien and um, um, for a moment he, he won't be able to look at Beatrice because her smile is too beautiful and he won't even hear the music of the spheres or the singing that goes on because it would deafen him. He is, re he is one step away from the Imperium. So there's this period where he, he can't see and, and um, in the next canto Peter will step forward to give him his examination in faith. It'll be an examination in faith, hope, and love. When the examination in love takes place, John comes forward to give him that exam. And Dante keeps screwing his eyes up to look at him because of this tradition that John was the only human besides Christ or Mary that ascended in the flesh. He looks so intently at him that he goes blind. It's a funny, it's a funny scene, but I also think there's this humor. Dante knows that traditionally love is blind. That, that he, it's not just looking at John, it's, it's also that he knows that in some ways when you enter the mystery of love, you're entering into, all of us enter into something we hard to see into very often. We, don't, we think we have answers for lots, but we don't. We've got to stop here. Um, sorry so late. Um, that takes us to the next seven. We will go from, um, we, we, this is, uh, 24, so 25 to, to the end. That's it. 25 to the end and we're done. At which point, all of you will be ready to finally pick up the Divine Comedy and read it. <laughs> and I, I hope you know I'm saying that seriously. Because the first time you read the Divine Comedy, you never read it. No. Now, you ought to be able to pick up this book and read it. Leave the footnotes alone. Yeah. Just read it and enjoy it because you have the whole behind you and you'll be able to see so much more as you go along. The old Italian, did this rhyme? Yes. It was a Terza Rima. It's, a, it's the three A, B, A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D. It just, it's a forward moving rhyme. Yeah, it did, yeah. Yeah. Very musical. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Suzanne told me Who? Suzanne. Oh, look at you. <laughs> From San Francisco. Although you can get here. Thanks. <laughs>